0: We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel according to Matthew today. If you don't know where that is in your Bible, uh, the Bible has two big parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Gospel of Matthew is the first, first book in the New Testament. And I'm going to give you a little cheat. We're going to be at in the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. So if you actually go to the Gospel of Mark and then flip back one or two pages, that's where we'll be. Where we left off last Friday, on Good Friday, was that Christ was put in the ground, that he, he had lifted up his bre- uh, his, himself and gave up his spirit, and that he was declared to be the Son of God. And so on Easter morning, we come three days later. I know for you math people, you're like, well, three, yeah. three days later, um, we come to, to wonder what happens next, to wonder at the end of the story. One of my uh, favorite authors, J.R.R. Tolkien, um, has a fantastic essay called "On Fairy Stories." Totally worth a read. But um, originally, I had planned to read like five minutes of this, and I thought I don't want that. So, but in this essay, he talks about how whenever we come to a story, we're looking for the resolution. We're looking for the turnaround. That we're when when we come to a story that we're looking, for, we're looking for the way that God resolves all of this. We're, we're, we're looking for the way that, that what we're expecting to happen comes true. And J.R.R. Tolkien would argue that deep in the heart of all of us, there's an expectation that all that is sad will come untrue, that all that is broken will be made whole, and that all that is dark will become light. And today, on this day, Christians celebrate when we believe that started, when the tables were turned, when death was swallowed up in victory, when its sting was removed. We believe that happened through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 28, we see these, this account of that resurrection. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day where we spend time contemplating the resurrection of your Son, how he was risen from the dead. So, Father, right now as we've sung and prayed, We've read your word, as we explore your word this morning, we pray that you would use it to open up our eyes, use it to compel us to walk forward, use it to compel us to live with your Son. It's in his name that we pray, amen. What does Easter do? What is the significance of Easter? What is the point of Easter? Why why do all four of the biographies of Christ's life and that we have in the New Testament, why does this end this way? Why does the Apostle Paul say in his letter to the Colossians that Christ in us is the hope of glory? Why does Easter matter? The core of the teaching of the earliest Christians, the core of the preaching of the earliest Christians were two events, the death of Christ, which we explored on Friday, and the resurrection of Christ. Why is Easter so important? Why did Christ rise from the dead? Why do Christians spend time once a year just focusing on this? I mean, every Sunday, in a sense, we celebrate Easter. Every Sunday, in a sense, we'd celebrate the death of Christ. But once a year, Christians around the world spend time specifically To celebrate uh, this day. So why Easter? What is its significance? In in this uh, section here, I think there's at least three things that tell us about uh, the significance of Easter. At least three things. Three things. And in short, it's going to tell us who Jesus is, who we are, and how we should respond. Who Jesus is, who we are, and how we should respond. Easter's uh, this resurrection narrative is going to tell us, uh, give us these three answers about who the identity of Christ, our own identity, and how we as His people must respond to Him. Now, to understand what Easter tells us about the Son of God, we kind of have to understand some things about the Gospel of Matthew as a whole. The Gospel of Matthew as a whole, the Gospel of Matthew starts off. Um, among other places, one of the first events in there is what's called the baptism of Jesus, where Jesus is led to uh, the John the Baptist, and he he gets baptized by Jesus or by John the Baptist, and he comes back out, and a uh, heavenly dove descends on him like the Holy Spirit, like a heavenly dove descends on him, and there is a voice that comes out of heaven: "This is my beloved child, with whom I am well pleased." And throughout the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, this theme that Jesus is the Son of God is developed. Even Satan, when he is tempting Jesus in the desert, snarls, If you are really the Son of God. And of course, Jesus, when he teaches his disciples to pray, says, Our Father who art in heaven. Jesus says these words in uh, Matthew 11. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And again, we see this in Matthew 16, 13-13. 16 where jesus is talking with his disciples and he asks his disciples who do they say that i am and the disciples say well some say john the baptist others say elijah or a prophet you're a holy man and of course jesus says well who do you say that i am and peter with the most profound words that he ever said or would say again says you are the christ the son of the living god the god of life And of course, it's only a few days later that Jesus takes three of his closest friends up to the mountain, up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And before these disciples, he appears as an angel of light. His clothes are white and shining, and he looks like lightning. And the three disciples see that next to him is Moses and Elijah. And there's a voice that comes out of heaven that says, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. That Matthew tells us again and again that Jesus is the Son of God. And even the last words that we ended our Good Friday service with from the Gospel of Matthew was the words of the centurion who's looking at Jesus and sees this crucifixion and finally says, truly this was the Son of God. And Matthew, throughout his gospel, has been asserting this truth, that Jesus is the Son of God. But, of course, on Good Friday, on the, on the day of his death, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of course, he's citing Psalm 22. He's, he, he's citing this epic psalm in the Old Testament. And, he, and his, there, there seems to be a, some irresolution. This, that Matthew's been arguing this whole time that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. And the Son of God dies. If he's really the son of God, if he really is the one who the father has sent to redeem mankind, how could the father abandon the son to death? How could he forget about him? And what we see with the resurrection of Christ is that the father did not forsake his own son. He did not abandon him to death. He did not leave him in the grave. He did not allow him to rot under the weight of earth and worms. We see that one of the most striking things about Matthew's account of of the resurrection is this angel that descends. Now, throughout the Bible, if you read all these stories about angels, what you will see is that they are terrifying. Everyone says they want to see an angel, but I promise you, you don't. They are... Face shines like lightning. They're terrifying. They're they're giant and and they they carry flaming swords. I mean, I know for some of us in our kids ministry, that's a cool idea, but it's not that these are majestic creatures. And throughout the Bible, we actually see that people are tempted to worship them as if they are God. It's not for no reason that Satan often appears as an angel of light, and yet. In the resurrection, the angel, this majestic creature of, of, of stunning proportion, is sent to do the bidding of another. That whoever this angel serves must really be in charge. That whoever this angel is a, is a servant for, whoever this angel obeys, whoever this angel calls Lord must truly be Lord. And what we see in the resurrection of Christ is that compared to Christ, the angel is a messenger boy. That, that compared to Christ, the angel is just, is just nothing. He's a peasant. He, he, he just does what his master tells him to do. That he is sent, to, uh, uh, he, he's sent as a messenger because Christ says, I don't really want to wait. Angel, why don't you wait here for the, for the women to show up? I'm going to stretch my legs. That, that this is a stunning reality. That just as the angels in Isaiah 6 float around the throne and they cover their face because they cannot bear to look upon the holy throne at the center of all things. And they themselves serve the one on the throne. So now the angel serves the one coming out of the grave. The resurrection of Christ serves to reinforce that Jesus really is the Son of God. That the Gospel of Matthew was not lying all along. That Jesus really did raise again. The the Gospel of Matthew tells us here that these these first century, you have to understand the significance of this. These first century Jewish people who who would say the, the Shema, that's a passage from the Old Testament that just says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Like, that's the... Big thing that the Jews of the first century believed. They fall down and worship Jesus. Because they were convinced that he was the son of God. And maybe you're hearing you're like, this is a great story. But, I mean, it's just, it's just that. It's a story. You'll notice here in this account that both of the Marys are named. Both of the Marys are named. That's very important to recognize for for a couple reasons in the ancient world instead of footnotes if uh, if a writer was going to cite the account of another he would use their name so it was another in essence the gospel of matthew saying listen the marys were there you don't believe me go talk to the marys you don't believe me go talk to these women who were at the tomb they are well known to have been there Their, their account of what has happened is well known So the Gospel of Matthew is relying on eyewitness testimony. And what else is important about this is that in the first century, in the first century, um, women didn't even have legal standing in terms of testimony at court. And so if Matthew was making this all up, there would have been no reason for him to say that the Marys were here. He would have said, well, probably not Peter. He would have said maybe John or, or somebody else was there. But if Matthew's just telling it like it is, if he's just saying this is what actually happened, if he's saying, I'm going to tell the truth even if the truth scandalizes me, even if it seems like this might not be reliable, then we can trust that he's giving us eyewitness testimony that Jesus really is the Son of God. The, the, the Gospel of Matthew couches the resurrection in a way that vindicates Jesus' uh, Jesus's identity as the Son of God. The Gospel of Matthew reinforces and reminds us that Jesus is the Son of God. As the end of Psalm 22 says, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him but has heard when he cried to him. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that Jesus is the Son of God, that he truly is, and it proves that through the resurrection that Jesus is vindicated. So that's what it tells us about who Jesus is. Here's what it tells us about who we are. It tells us about who we, who are his followers are. Look at the words that come out of Jesus' mouth. The first words that come out of Jesus' mouth in verse 9. Greetings. Greetings, not, I told you so, not, not, I bet you'll believe me now, not, you know, it was because of you that I died a few days ago. The words that come out of Jesus' mouth are greetings. You don't say those words, you don't speak those things, unless you're at peace with somebody. See, for most of us, if we died on behalf of another person, we'd have to have a conversation before we could have reconciliation with them. But Jesus' first words is not not something that implies that there's any barrier between them now, but his first word is, greetings. Greetings. This is Matthew's way of telling us that Jesus and the disciples are at peace. That that Jesus, because he has borne their sins on the cross, because he died in their place, because he was condemned for them, they are now justified. Paul, Paul, the apostle Paul, tells us in his letter, he says, letter to the Romans, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the resurrection tells us that God is at peace with us. And then it tells us this, do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. Now, maybe you don't think about much about that because you have brothers, and maybe your brothers are not always very brotherly. But this is really important. This is the, you know, this is the only time in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus says that his disciples are his brothers. That Jesus talks about specific people as his brothers. Now, to be fair, um, Jesus tells the disciples to think of themselves as brothers. So in Matthew 18, when he's telling them to forgive one another, he talks about them, tells them to think about themselves as brothers. That language happens. And Jesus does tell uh, them to pray to our Father, and even in Matthew 12, it almost, he's almost there. He almost gets this close. It says, but he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, So he gets pretty close in Matthew 12, but here's the problem. The disciples just days ago, had cowered and run away from him and abandoned him in his hour of greatest need. So this description that he gives is not, does not seem to vindicate his disciples as his brothers. Because his disciples have just proven that they are, that they are frail and fragile and faulty. After all, Jesus himself said in chapter 10, But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And so it seems like the brothers, it seems like the disciples of Jesus have lost their chance to be part of the family of God. Seems like Jesus gave them an opportunity and it seems like they squandered it. Maybe you're here today and maybe you feel the same way. Maybe you feel like you you had that chance to be part of the family of God, but you've thrown it away. Maybe there's deep regrets that you have in your past. Maybe you just feel shame and you're wondering, would God ever want me to be part of his family? And you ought to think deeply about what it says when Jesus says, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. See, the resurrection of Christ not only proves that he is the son of God, but it also proves that we can be sons and daughters of God. That we can have the same father as our father. That Jesus could be our older brother. After all, the end of Psalm 22 says, this is the messianic psalm, the same one that Jesus quoted on the cross. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. I have brothers. I have six brothers. I know that's too many. I tried to tell my parents, but I have brothers, and none of my brothers... None of my brothers have ever done to me what Jesus' disciples did to him. And if I'm honest, it would be hard for me to call a relative of mine, let alone somebody who was not even related to me, who had wronged me in such deep and profound ways, and who had thrown away all, all relationship be hard for me to call them my brother still. But here's the good news of the gospel. Is that because Jesus bore the penalty for their forsaking him. Because Jesus was forsaken on their behalf. Because Jesus was rejected. They can be reconciled. Because Jesus himself bore the punishment for their sins. They can be, what the Bible tells us, is adopted into the family of God. And they can become children of God, and they can have the same father that Jesus has as their father. Which means this, and the Apostle Paul points us out in the book of Romans, that if Jesus was risen from the dead because God hurt his son, then so will we. The book of Romans chapter 8, verse 11 says this, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The resurrection of Christ proves not only that Jesus is the Son of God, but it proves that we who follow Him, who put our faith in Jesus, we too can be sons and daughters of God. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, I don't, I don't know if he would take me. I don't know if he would want me. I wouldn't want me. Well, you need to read the gospel a little bit more closely because you can see all the times where the disciples abandoned Christ and misunderstood him and didn't do what he said and were sarcastic and snarky with him. And Jesus can still say, three days after he died for their sins, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. So if this is true, if this is what the resurrection tells us about Jesus, and this is what the resurrection tells us about ourselves, what does the resurrection mean that we must do? How should we respond? Let me give you five. Five ways that if, if the resurrection is true, you must respond. Five, five things that must be true. Number one, you must have peace with God. You must have peace with God. If you are here today and you think the resurrection is true, but I don't know that I could ever have peace with God, I want to encourage you that there are far worse people than you who have found peace with God. There are people who have done atrocious and just terrible things who found peace with God. And some of them are in the Bible. If you read the story of King David or you read the stories of, of Judah, the older brother of Joseph, God makes a way. The only thing, the only requirement that, it, that is necessary to come and have peace with God is by putting our faith in Christ. It's by telling him, Jesus, I want all of you take all of me you must have peace with god number 2 if the resurrection is true you must not fear him you must not fear him go back up to if you look in verse 5 remember we just said angels are terrifying creatures the first thing the angels tell the the angel tells the women is this do not be afraid And again, it tells us in verse 8, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear. And then Jesus says, do not be afraid in verse 10. Of course, there's a kind of fear of the Lord which is appropriate. There's kind of an honor of uh, reverencing the Lord. And that fear of the Lord is a good thing. But the kind of fear which we must not have, if the resurrection is true, we, we must not have this fear. We must not be afraid that God would go back on his word. We must not be afraid that God, even though he said there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, might still condemn me even though I believe. If the resurrection is true, we we must have this confidence that says not only did Christ die for sinners, Christ died for me. As we said in the, on Good Friday, not only did Christ take Barabbas' place, he took my place. In my place condemned, he stood. We, we must not be afraid. Number three, if Christ is risen from the dead, if the resurrection really happened, we must worship him as Lord. We must worship him as Lord. You cannot have him as Savior and not as Lord. In verse 9, we see that the women, they come up and they take hold of his feet. Now, in the ancient Middle East, somewhat like today in different ways, the foot was considered to be the most unclean part of the body, right? So that's why if you see riots happening in, in the news in the Middle East, people hit each other with shoes. I mean, that's, a, that's more than just a—that a, a, that has a lot of meaning, that is invested with a lot of importance. It's an important thing. It's it's a sign of shame. So in the Bible, and you see this at a couple points, where people grab Jesus' feet. It's a sign that says, even the most unclean part of you is cleaner than the cleanest part of me. It's It's a sign of total submission, total subservience, total lordship. When the women see Jesus, they take hold of his feet. Commentators say the closest thing that we see to this in the Gospels and other Gospels is when, in John 12, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, comes to Jesus and breaks open the ointment and washes Jesus' feet with her own hair. It's the same kind of action, that that if Jesus really did rise from the dead— then we must worship him as lord which is exactly what it tells us they did it says they took hold of his feet and worshiped him there is a there is a part of us i think that wants to treat jesus like a buffet table like we want to take forgiveness i'm all about forgiveness it tastes really good but but i don't know about worship and lordship that <laughs> worshiping him as Lord. That's, those are the veggies and I just don't eat veggies. But Jesus is not a buffet table. You can either have him as Savior and Lord or you cannot have him. He can either be the one who both forgives you and produces fruit in you, both the one who saves you and sanctifies you, both the one who who pardons you and purifies you. You, you must have both, but you cannot have one or the other. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, that means that you must worship him as Lord. That he must become the center of your life. That your planner and your wallet, your schedule, your identity... Everything that you are and everything that you have and every relationship that you're in must become centered around Christ. If you have the hope of glory dwelling in you, why would you want anything else? If he really was your Savior and he really is your Lord, why wouldn't you want him to redeem those parts of you that you're liable to sweep under the rug? Why wouldn't you want him to change your worst impulses? Why wouldn't you want him to sweeten the savor of all of your closest relationships? What more worthy cause could you give your time and your money and your energy and your effort to? If Jesus really did rise from the dead, we must worship him as Savior and Lord. Number four. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, and I really am a son or a daughter of the Father, that means that I have a whole new family of faith. In other words, if Jesus is Savior and Lord, if you really worship him as one who's risen from the dead, that, that carries with it the fact that you must become part of his people. Yes, Jesus died to save sinners, and not only that, he, just, he died to save me, but he also died to save others. Jesus did not die just to save one Christian, but to save a church. Jesus did not just die to save one person, but a people. Jesus did not die just so that he could have one brother, but many. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, and you are in him, and you have put your faith in him, and you've received him, then you must become one of his people. You must become part of the family of God. You must enter into the community of faith. It's the natural direction for those who have Him dwelling in them. Maybe you say, well, that's too high a price to pay. I don't know if I could do that. I I can just tell you, I've been through, as a pastor, enough traumatic things, enough difficult things, enough things that I've seen just eviscerate people they lose all sense of self, all sense of identity, and they walk around catatonic. I've been through some of those things. I'd happily trade swap stories with anybody here. And I don't know how I would have made it without the church. I would not be standing before you today without not only an earthly family, but also a spiritual family. And if you are broken and you are limping and you are hurting and you're covered in shame and you're wondering if, if, if anybody could love you, not only does the Father love you, but so do we. If Christ really did rise from the dead, it compels us to become part of his people. And finally, if Christ really did rise from the dead, we must rejoice. We must rejoice. Verse 8 says, So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Maybe you have grown up in a church where what you think of happens on Sunday morning is dour and sour and dry. Maybe what you think of when you think of the church and of Christianity is meaningless words uttered rotely once a week or once a month. Maybe you grew up in a setting, in a family where where going to church was the chore that you did. I just want to tell you, that is not the biblical vision for Christianity. The biblical vision of Christianity is that we come and grab hold of Him with great joy, that the joy of the Lord is our salvation. So... If you're here today and you are thinking that church thing is just musty and moldy and old and ugh, I just want to encourage you, you don't know the real Jesus. Because to know him, to have the hope of glory, can do nothing else but give us joy in the midst of sorrow. To renew us inwardly day by day, even as outwardly we're wasting away. And to look forward to the hope of the resurrection with great joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you saw fit to raise your son from the dead. We thank you that from ages past until ages future, the center of history was the death and the resurrection of your son. And we thank you that this is not a cold, abstract, hard reality, but it is a reality with great joy. So Father, even now as we lift up our voices to sing, would you fill us with air that we might sing your praises, even as we will for all eternity. It's in the name of your Son, our great Savior, that we pray these things. Amen.